You're listening to a Church Doctor production. Welcome to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. Welcome to Episode 4 of Mission Possible, how everyday ordinary Christians, like you, can become world changers. As we uh, finished the last episode, we were talking about words and their meaning, and we were looking at um, the whole idea of Away in a Manger, the song that many of us sang as kids, and we talked about the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, and we just thought they were short cows. We couldn't figure it out, and we talked about the missionary principle of translating the gospel into language of the people we are trying to reach in the mission that God has given to us. And I want to pick that up and talk about uh, this whole issue some more about how we communicate. Communication is huge for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to make sense to people or God won't make sense to people. We can either be a good conduit of the good news of Jesus or we can be a stumbling block for people, and when that happens, we usually don't even know it. But becoming a missionary, you get wise to this stuff. So, when you worship, but you don't know what you are doing, then you are practicing religion, not faith. You see, there are two things. There's faith, that's that trust and belief in Jesus that means everything to you. And then there's religion. See, religion is going through the motions. But the motions aren't the same for every person in every time span in every culture. That changes. And the whole idea that Jesus came in the flesh, called the Incarnation, became one of us, a Jew to Jews. That's God's signal that it's not all about religion going through the motions. It's all about faith, which is the relationship. And the relationship sticks when we form our communication to the person we're trying to reach. We indeed then are a servant like Jesus was to us. We are to others, servants who are willing to give up, to go up, to reach that pinnacle of sharing Jesus in an effective manner. And that means some of our favorite things have to be changed. And Jesus spoke to this. The disciples and uh, the Pharisees especially, uh, they started the concept, they started the conversation by saying, you know, you do things differently, Jesus. And he said, well, new wine needs new wineskins. You see, the religious part is the wineskin. The faith is the wine. And that's a beautiful picture that Jesus used. Even though we might not get wine in a wineskin these days, but the container changes with every era, every culture, every person in some cases. So, this is the difference between the ritualistic practice of religions, but Christianity is God's ultimate action 
to make sense to everybody. That is why Jesus became flesh. And that's what the incarnation is all about. Uh, that word incarnation is, is really great because we call chili, chili con carne. When we say chili is con carne, that means it's chili with meat. Well, that word carne is the word incarnation, is what Jesus did. He came as meat, a real person. Maybe that's a good way to help you remember that. So, here's the point. Clearly telling the story of Jesus in an understandable way is absolutely essential if you want to reach people effectively for Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're not a missionary. But when you do that, when you translate that so that it's understandable for your hearers, then you are a missionary. So what do we read in John 1, chapter 1, verse 14? The Word became flesh. The Word of God became flesh and lived among us. You know what kind of a leap that is for the Trinity? You know what kind of a leap that is for God? What that is for Jesus? To put his son in flesh in this world instead of heaven so that he looks like, speaks like, eats the same kind of foods, follows the same kind of customs, but is God in the flesh. The word became flesh and lived among us. A missionary must become flesh, speak the language of the people, and live among the people they are trying to reach. So, in missionary training, this is a non-negotiable. What it means is to effectively reach people for Jesus Christ, you must practice what missionaries call dynamic equivalence. Now, think about that. You might even want to write it down. Dynamic equivalence. And this is what every Bible translator must deal with. In fact, every preacher or anybody who witnesses to a neighbor must deal with dynamic equivalence. So to put a name to it, dynamic equivalence, is really helpful for us to remember what we need to do to reach people effectively. Well, every Bible translator has to decide between two different approaches to most effectively communicate Christianity to a new language group or a new generation like our kids. And I'm telling you, I think that a lot of people that I've met who have seen their grown children fall away from the church have taken it very personally. The parents that I have interviewed have cried when they talk about their children no longer going to church, their children's children not being baptized because they have drifted away from church. Some of that goes back to churches that will not translate language to the current language of that generation. So this is a message to your church, to your worship leaders, to your preacher, to Sunday school teachers. Everyone you see is a translator, a missionary, either a good one or a bad one. 
So let's get into this. There are two principles that missionaries must learn. The first one is people most often respond to the faith when they hear it described in their own heart language. Everybody has their own heart language. Even people that speak English have different heart languages. If you're an African-American from an urban neighborhood of Chicago, you have a different heart language than the white-collar worker who lives in downtown Chicago. There's a different heart language with every segment of people, and it changes. If you are in Louisiana, there is a different heart language than people who live in Minnesota. There's even a different heart language among people who are retired and live in Arizona. They have different concepts. They have a different style of life. They're retirement people. And so there are certain nuances that you would be sensitive to if you were a missionary to any of those people groups that I just mentioned. Your heart language is the language that you dream in or, as missionary teachers teach, or make love in. Now, I do not recommend that you ask a non-church person, a non-Christian person, what language they make love in. That would be a little too personal, obviously. (laughs) But, But you can ask people what language they dream in. Now, You might say, well, that's simple. That's Anybody knows that. Well, it gets more difficult than that. Let's say you have a first-generation Hispanic family that comes to your English-speaking church. The children go to an English-speaking elementary school, so they're learning English. But the parents speak only Spanish at home. And so, what do you do? Separate the parents from the children and have two worship services, one in English, one in Spanish? No. Good missionaries speak Spanish, the newcomer's language, that'd be the parents, and have an interpreter in English for the kids. You see... Sharing the gospel sometimes gets very complicated. And if you follow the Apostle Paul and how he spoke to different groups, the Jews, then the Gentiles, the Romans, you'll discover that he used metaphors, he used language that was different. But the message about Jesus was always, always, always the same. So, language, and what we don't understand is that often is that language is alive. It changes and it grows. That means that what reaches our heart language as adult mature Christians may not apply to our children. This is why most every church has some kind of children's program or children's message or something because they understand that kids have a different language and a different level of cognition. 
depending on their ages. Very young kids need more than just words. They need a visual aid. So books are out for children's pastors and other volunteers that want to help do children's messages because you want to get across to the children. And the parents are used to this. They're sitting in the chairs in the in the church and they're smiling and may get more out of the children's message anyway than the pastor's sermon if the pastor isn't careful. So there are two choices you have when you translate any part of the truth of Scripture. You either will give preference to the words, which a lot of churches do. They hang on to the old hymnal. They hang on to the old words. And some of these words go back to Old England. They don't even use these words in England anymore, like thee and thou. But so many churches still say the Lord's Prayer and use the words, thy kingdom come, which to, to basic young children and your teenagers, if they're not steeped in a long life of Christianity, if you have new members in your church, to them, that's just gobbledygook. That's just words that don't make any sense. That means basically it tells them that God is old and out of date. The very last thing in the world you want to communicate about our living Savior so don't hang out of the words. Give preference to the meaning. So I'm always intrigued by the story of the widow's mites. It's a great story about how this woman who was very poor gave everything she had, and it wasn't much. But Jesus saw it, and he said, you know what? That's the person who really loves God. It's a great story with great meaning. But if you give preference to the words, you're going to use the widow's mites. But if you give preference to the meaning, you will talk about the few pennies that this person had. Or, if you're in another country, you will use whatever is the smallest denomination of their money. And so, that's what Jesus did for that time. He spoke in the denomination that they were using that we would call a penny here in America. So if you tell people and preach about the widow's mites, basically, I got news for you. In today's language, in America, mites are bugs. And that's what it means. And so what you are doing is you are just confusing people like, why would the lady get praise from Jesus for putting two bugs in the offering plate? I say that to make a point, because this is unconscious in most of our minds, but it's not unconscious in the mind and the heart of the missionary. We want to be like Jesus. We want to become like flesh to whatever person we're trying to reach. So we have to learn a lot about them first and think a lot about them and then share the message in a package they can unwrap and understand. Well, depending on how much trouble you have with that concept, that'll tell you how much you need to change to be an effective and faithful missionary for Jesus Christ. And it tells you how effective 
your church can be if you remove some of those roadblocks. You know, on this subject, you probably know that there are Bible translators all over the world. They are translating the Bible into a lot of languages that have no Bible in their language. A lot of people groups along and around the world. And so there are all kinds of Bible translators. Now, they can either translate the words into the exact words of whatever translation they're looking at and translate those words into the new language of the people they're trying to reach with the Bible, or they can translate the meaning of those words. And that's called dynamic equivalence. And that's what Jesus coming in the flesh is all about. That's what the incarnation is all about. God intends the meaning to be more important than the words. So do most churches that are reaching unchurched people. So do most Christians who want to be a real missionary to their unchurched neighbor. The truth is, many declining and plateaued churches Dying denominations, stuck in hymn books, seminaries who don't teach this stuff, they are focusing on ancient words when Jesus and his message are meant to be relevant to the audience. Think about it. So the question is, and you might be asked this question someday, what is your favorite Bible translation? Well, I don't know what you'd say. You might say one that you've used for a long time. I know some Christians would say the King James Bible. Some would say the New King James Bible, which has been updated. Some would say, no, the message by Eugene Peterson's translation. Or another one. When I'm asked, what is your favorite Bible translation, as a missionary, I say, the next one. Because throughout my years of ministry and my years as a church doctor in consulting churches and speaking to crowds, I'm concerned about speaking the words of the people I am trying to reach as a missionary. And so, when people ask me, what's your favorite translation? I just say the next one. Because throughout my life, I have read every new Bible that comes out cover to cover. And they're pretty worn out by the time I get done, because I don't just read, I underline, make notes, whatever. And I have them on my shelf. Some of them have lost the cover. Some of them are in pieces. I went through two or three versions of some of those. Uh, two or three books because they fell apart on the way because um, it takes a while to get through the whole Bible. But I, I've, I've got them all the way through, and I keep doing that, and I plan to do that until I die, and then I won't have to worry about it anymore. So read the next translation of the Bible all the way through three times or at least twice, and then put it on the shelf and do the same with the next one and the next one for the rest of your life because language is alive and it changes just like we do. Here's an idea for you. Get together with some other Christians 
and ask them to write out the Lord's Prayer, however you hear it at your church, just the way it is there. And then ask each one to write a translation of the Lord's Prayer. And then come together and share what you have written. And I'll tell you, my boss, Tracy, who now leads Church Doctor Ministry, she did this with our staff once at a staff retreat. And it was a phenomenal exercise. As we dug into the words of the Lord's Prayer, we didn't have all the same words in the translation, but the translation taken together was fascinating. A great way to teach the meaning behind the words of the Lord's Prayer. Now, there's another part to this communication issue, and that is the need to translate or explain redemptive analogies. You might want to write that down, too. Redemptive analogies. Let's first talk about redemptive or the redemption. Redemption is just a word that in Christian terminology means how God saves his people by paying the price of the punishment we deserve because of our sin. And his method was to send his sinless son to die in our place, rise again, and become the way God forgives and reconnects us to himself. That's what the redemption means. We have been redeemed. We have been traded in for a new model. We are forgiven, not sinless, not perfect, but forgiven because we believe in Jesus Christ and he paid the price with his death on the cross. Now, there are a lot of analogies that explain that act of God. These are the analogies of redemption, okay? So, an analogy is picture language that helps explain a complex biblical truth that is so profound it is hard to grasp. And there are many of them in the scripture. For example, Jesus talked about the sheep and the shepherd. Now, that was in Israel and that was then. And I've been to Israel still today. When you go to Israel, you see a lot of sheep on the hillsides. There are still shepherds everywhere. And uh, that's just part of the culture, even remaining till today. But if you live in Los Angeles, you probably and very likely have never met a shepherd. And maybe you have never seen an alive sheep. And so there's some needed translation for that. So here's the challenge. First of all, you have the meaning of the analogy. The a meaning of the analogy for the sheep and the shepherd is Jesus is the good shepherd, and he lays down his life for the sheep, just like shepherds in Israel did. Back in the day, they would give their life to protect the herd of sheep. It was all they had. And so people there at the time of Jesus, they got that, the sheep and the shepherd analogy. So the meaning then is the redemption of Jesus, what he did for us. 
And that is universal for every culture and timeless for every generation. However, it takes different analogies for different people to, to give that same meaning of the redemptive act of Christ. It was meaningful for first century Palestine, but it's fourth foreign for third generation urbanites from the projects in the Bronx or perhaps for most of your non-Christian neighbors. So redemptive analogies that are in the Bible, like the sheep and the shepherd, must be explained whenever possible. And they must be explained based on the worldview of the person and their culture or the people group that you are trying to reach. It can't rely on your particular people group or your worldview. It has to be the people you're trying to reach. Now, if they don't know Jesus, they don't know about the sheep and shepherd. That hasn't already been translated for them. And it doesn't always work. Sometimes the redemptive analogy must be reinvented because massive explanation would be necessary. And if you don't explain it, it would be a roadblock to the gospel. So it must be changed without losing the integrity of the redemptive meaning. So one of my favorite books is the book. It's been out for a long time. They even made a movie of it called The Peace Child by Don Richardson. I'll don't tell you about that because it's a great story that you will remember and help you with this redemptive analogy. So it's a short summary of this story. Uh, Don Richardson and his wife, who is a nurse, uh, were sent to be missionaries in Irian Jaiwa, which is a portion of New Guinea. And they were Americans uh, sent to reach the unreached people group that had never had contact with Christianity. That people group was called the Sawi Indians, S-A-W-I, Indians. The Sawi were headhunters, and Richardson and his wife made friends with the tribe after they arrived, and, and they had never seen white people before. They began to work with the elders of the tribe, the leaders, the people that had influence on the others. And he started telling them the basic gospel story of Jesus. But when Don Richardson explained about Jesus being betrayed by Judas, all the elders cheered and clapped and were happy and danced. And Judas became the hero of the story to the elders. But the last thing any missionary would want. Well, after several discussions with the elders, Richardson learned that one of the strongest values among the Sawi Indians was the value of treachery. If you could pull a trick on somebody, and the bigger the trick, the better, then you were a hero. So when Judas betrayed Jesus, he became the hero. And so that's why they thought Judas was the hero. Well, Richardson, as a missionary, was distraught, and he was thinking, oh, man, all my progress of bringing the Savior to these people was actually going in reverse. Soon afterward, a few Sawi were involved in an act of treachery with a young man from a neighboring tribe. Now, the two tribes didn't get along very well, and they were often at war. 
Well, the young Sawis had come across this man while he was hunting in the jungle. And they tricked him into being friendly by being friendly and giving him a gift. They agreed to meet again. And when they met, they killed him. And they became heroes among the Sawi tribe people, bringing the man's head on a stick. And it turned out that the young man they killed was the oldest son of the chief of the other tribe. Not a good situation. Well, what happened is war broke out. Richardson buried the dead. His wife, the nurse, used her nursing skills on the wounded. And the fighting continued for a long time. Finally, both sides decided enough was enough. They were starting to starve to death. They didn't have time to hunt or fish. So the day came when the two tribes met in a large clearing to make peace. Richardson and his wife watched this amazing act of peace unfold. It's fascinating. The two chiefs, one from each tribe, met in the center of the field. Their wives were with them, and each of the wives were carrying their youngest child. Both women were crying. Each chief took their son from their mother's arms and exchanged them. At that point, all the people on both sides cheered. The tribal chiefs parted and went their way, and peace was restored. Richardson, the, the missionary, couldn't predict the breakthrough this would provide for the gospel to reach the Sawi tribe. So he asked the head elder to explain what just took place. What happened? The elders told Richardson that when they wanted to make peace, both chiefs exchanged their youngest child as long as these children lived in the other village with the other tribe. The tribes promised to live in peace. And they called that the peace child. Well, Richardson thought about this unique and strange part of their culture, and he realized that this was the opportunity to invent a redemptive analogy. He began teaching about Jesus using that redemptive analogy. So here's what he told them. He started speaking to the Sawi tribe by saying, God created all people. They were supposed to live in harmony with God, but they tricked God and made war against God and turned away from him. So he sent his only child, Jesus, who was his peace child, and Jesus became a human being and came to make peace. Jesus died, but God rose him up on the third day, and he's alive and well forever. Anyone who wants peace forever with the God who created them, believes in God's peace child, Jesus. This was a major breakthrough, and today the Sawi Indians are substantially Christian. Richardson baptized hundreds in the name of Jesus, the peace child. Is it in the Bible? No. Is the concept? Absolutely. You see, the core work of missionaries people who want to reach others for Jesus is to learn the culture of the people you're trying to reach, to listen more than talk at first, and then translate the redemptive act of God through Christ in picture language that communicates more than words. This is one of the keys to revival. It is a non-negotiable for a missionary 
that wants to reach people for Jesus. And with that, I recommend, if you can get a hold of that book, Peace Child, an unforgettable story of primitive jungle treachery in the 20th century, I highly recommend it. It is just amazing. It is also available as a movie on DVD. And so that should help you think about redemptive analogies. So until our next episode, episode five, I leave you with that imagery of the peace child. And for some, he is Jesus Christ who made peace with us who have been in treachery with God and bring us back to God, the God who loves us. God bless you. You have been listening to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. If you've liked this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to hear future episodes. Check out Kent Hunter's new book, Restoring Civility, Lessons from the Master, available at Amazon.com.